your BC Day long weekend. We're coming to you from the Go Goat Sports Studio built by Arbor Lee here at the Iconic Wall Center downtown Vancouver. If you're visiting Vancouver, need a place to stay by the airport, we recommend the Western Wall Center YVR, some rest, relaxation in those plush heavenly beds. Matt Sikaris along with Blake Price, Grace Ass, Hidden Switches, conducting things in this show or presentation of the Applewood Auto Group, where we can get you in the 23 Centra from $83 weekly, the 23 Kai from 76 weekly, and the 23 Murano from 135 weekly, because Blake Price, as they say... It is all good at Applewood. Check our Twitter account, at Sakarison Price, for today's Bodog poll question, and we certainly hope you're enjoying your BC Day long weekend here in August. We have had great success with these Vancouver Media Legends shows since we started them up earlier this year. And so when the statutory holidays come around, we uh, we make sure we have another episode for you. And really, this whole series would have been incomplete without Jim Robson, the legend of all legends, the Hockey Hall of Famer, the BC Sports Hall of Famer, who, of course, was the soundtrack for Vancouver Canucks games for nearly 30 years, or more if you want to count the Canucks pre-NHL, and Squire Barnes, who has been a constant on your television Mm -hmm. sets for 32 years. And has not aged, by the way. I was going to say. He looks identical. And still looks boyish after all of these years as your anchor, uh, now on global TV, but he will outline his career he will outline his career as we get the into it. A longtime BC TV man right. on BC Day. Right, here. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Bodog line of the day from me and Bodog, your source, free casino games, poker strategy, and sports odds. There are all sorts of NFL, NHL player props out there. Connor McDavid read recently, did an interview from the golf course, said he's not done yet. He's going to be pushing even more next year. I can't believe I'm going over 54 and a half goals on any player. I mean, there was a time, Blake, where you would have told me, is anybody going to score 50 again? Mm-hmm. And I would have said only, you know, a select few. But we've seen scoring come back. I'm going over 54.5 goals for Connor McDavid on your Bodog line of the day. So let's get to today's menu. It's pretty simple. Brought to you by Dutch to breakfast, to brunch, to lunch. Get it all at Dutch. We will hear from Squire Barnes. We will come back. We will unpack. We have an amusing rapid fire at the end. You're going to want to hear that. And then set up the legend of all legends, Mr. Jim Robson. No matter what you're buying, folks, when you're out in the world looking for this, that, and the other, I think you want to support businesses that you feel good about supporting. You can feel good about supporting the Applewood Auto Group. Uh, They've made the car business and communities around them a whole lot better with their work in the community. Go and find out why it is indeed all good at Applewood. Visit them online anytime at applewood.ca. Well, our next guest has 
been on the screens and in the lives of British Columbians for 31 years. It's the sports anchor with Global BC. It is our pleasure to welcome to our Legend Series, the one and only Squire Barnes. How are you, Hi, sir? Guys. I'm good. This this series must be getting close to the end, if I'm <laughs> correct. No. You guys have pretty much run out of dudes. You're on a show with Robson. This is weird. This is the meat of the order, the heavy hitters that we're yeah, I know. Exactly. I, and I have been on shows with Robson in the past, yes. <laughs> um, you're from Berth, Burnaby, but Don Taylor insists I designate between north, south, or elsewhere. What part of Burnaby did you grow up in? He's north, and I'm technically central. So oh, Burnaby Central is where I went to high school. I, yeah. I, I grew up just off of Canada Way. Which is basically the middle of Burnaby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's that? And was it a childhood that was pointing to being a sports reporter, a sports anchor, Squire? Was this always the dream? No, it wasn't always the dream. Um, I kind of fell into it by accident almost. I mean, I grew up with a father who had three things he liked to watch. Sports, politics, and anything with Dean Martin. And so I followed along. I mean, we had one television set and either you liked sports or you didn't watch TV. Mm-hmm. So I was always engrossed in it. I followed it. I mean, my father used to have season tickets to the Canucks before they were in the NHL. I remember that. But um, yeah, I kind of fell into radio by accident. 25 years ago, I was doing traffic and weather. Where Did you start in news? Did you start in traffic and weather? What no. was the entry point? No. The entry point was 1984. The entry point was a station that no longer exists called CKO. They needed somebody to help out their sports guy. They had one sports guy. So I volunteered in June of 84, and I kept coming in every day for free until eventually I started doing jobs that they needed to be done every day. And then in December, they felt sorry for me and gave me an actual job and paid me. So six months of free, and then they gave me 800 a month, which was a huge raise on zero. And what yeah. year are we there? What year are we? What, what year are we talking? Eight, 1984. I remember the yeah. first, the first Canucks coach I covered was Bill LaForge. Oh, all the legendary. I was going to say yes. <laughs> all twenty. Who was remarkably a nice guy to the media, but the players hated him, probably for good reason. But he was great to the media. Was it straight to global from there, Squire CKO? Just to, okay. No. To, no, there was a lot of stops in between. There was a point, I remember, I had five jobs. Uh, part-time at a radio station. I used to write, remember Sterling News Services, mm-hmm. the newspapers? They had a whole bunch of small market newspapers. I would write for them. And actually, one of the jobs during that time was I would work for the Daily Racing Forum. And I had wow. to have a column of who I thought would win the race and write a little column about it. So okay, let's let's break, let's let's break this down. Did you actually know anything there, or were you just filling space at that point and making? No, any... I did. I did. Yeah. I, okay. Of, when when I was growing up, a friend of mine's dad owned racehorses, so we used to always be at the track. So I learned how to read the racing form. And, ah, and good for you. I don't know how I fell into that. Somebody used to have the job, and I was hanging around the track in the press box, and someone said, "Hey, do you need a gig?" It's like, sure. Uh, can you pick some winners? Yeah, I can try, and. I mean, I don't know how many winners I picked, but I I wrote very nicely. I made it sound like I knew what I was talking about. Right. Yeah. So you didn't pursue a career as a handicapper or a bloodstock agent or anything like that, huh? 
No, there was a time when I was a kid and we were at the track looking at my friend's dad's horse and one of the trainers started looking at me and thinking maybe this kid could be a jockey, but that wasn't going to happen. Somebody told me you grew up with Michael J. Fox and you guys remain friends today. Yes. I, I, I mean, Mike's a little bit older than me. I knew his sister better than I knew him when I was younger. His younger sister, Kelly, was actually the, the, the friend I was telling you about whose dad owned a lot of racehorses. His younger sister was Kelly's buddy. So I, I knew the Fox family. And then I, I sort of knew Mike peripherally. And then um, he used to have his um, golf tournament at, at uh, Riverway in Burnaby. And I used to go there all the time and help out in it. So I, I know I do know Mike. Yeah, I do. Mm. He was I last saw him. He was in town a couple of months ago. His mother, Phyllis, passed away last year. And they had a, a celebration of life, and he was there. So, yeah. So, uh, fill in the gaps further. Uh, how do we get to How do we get to the legendary run at Global? I actually wrote Sports Page for a while. Well, did you? Okay. Yeah, when Taylor was there and Randorf was there, uh, and while I was doing that, I also was working at um, CBC. They used to have a half hour show on the weekends called Sports Line. BMAC hosted it. Barry McDonald right. was there. Yep. Armitage was there. Uh, Eric Dwyer was there. Um, Greg Shannon, who's produced the Canucks games for a million years, was there as a producer. And I was I used to go in the edit bay and just sort of put the highlights together and stuff for everybody. And then um, and we used to voice it. The guys didn't like to do, because it was a half-hour show, they didn't want to do voiceovers all the time. So they would get me to do voiceovers on tape. And then one day the... Uh, the director, a guy named Brian Murphy, came up to me and said, um, the guy's going to be away for the summer. Do you want to audition to fill in? I said, sure. I said, who else is auditioning? He said, nobody. You'll just keep auditioning till you get it right. And at that time, I, I uh, had a mustache and glasses. And it, um, I probably shouldn't have been allowed near public parks looking <laughs> like that. And anyway, no one told me it looked awful. And... Um, until this guy's, and this was a Sunday night, and he said, we're going to audition on Friday, and on Friday I want contact lenses and no mustache. So, <laughs> oh, really? Okay. A man changed my life in more ways than one. I owe that guy a ton. He changed my look, <laughs> and he changed my job. <laughs> so I, I so... filled in there, and then uh, it was Jay Paul McConnell who told uh-huh. me at a Canucks game one day, he said, BCTV's looking for, they're going to do a Saturday morning show, and they need a sportscaster on this show. So I auditioned here with Jennifer Mather, then became Jennifer Burke. She was who I auditioned with. And at the end of the auditions, I remember the producer came around the corner and said, okay, auditions are over. You start on Saturday. And that was that. Wow. And it was just, when I started here, it was just one day a week. When Jay Paul called you over, there's no way he called you just Squire. I'm sure there was some sort of, uh, hey, Junior, know. something. Uh, yeah, or, yeah. Well, he'd always say, sir. Remember, Jay Paul always yes, had that way yeah. of talking. Thank you, yeah. sir. sir. And, uh, but he <laughs> called me over and said, listen, sir, there's this job, and I'm gonna, I'll recommend you for it. Because he knew the producer. The, produ- the producer was a guy named Doug Rushton who had come from CBC over to BCTV. So he was a friend of Jay Paul's. That mm-hmm. helped. Yeah. Uh, he he knew everybody in, in town. Yeah. Um, so when did you start daily? When did you get in the big anchor chair? Uh, September of 96. I don't know why I know all these months and dates. September of 96, they made the huge change. It was a meeting in a boardroom. There was me, there was Bernie, there was McKeechee, there was Houlihan, 
Michael Kennedy, who you may or may not have mm-hmm. run across, and uh, and our bosses. And I remember our boss saying, I, we're going to make some changes, and some of you are going to like them, and some of you aren't, and I don't care. That was his line. And then he just read the list. So it's like I started doing the six and late at that point. Wow. And I had um, to do the Canucks, I remember, too. I had to do the, the uh, sort of the, the Dan Murphy Canucks thing for one season, mm. which oh, I hated. Okay. So I passed it off to Barry. Why? Why'd you hate it? I didn't like the travel. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I'm not a I'm not a happy flyer, so there's a lot of unhappy flights. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I go was... on, when I go on planes. I look around at all the other passengers and think to myself, Do these people look like extras in a disaster movie? <laughs> because if they do, I don't like my chances. <laughs> So. Well, that that feeds into my next question because I was going to say, I mean, one of the transitions I had to make from reporting to to doing what Blake and I have done for twelve years is you're kind of anchored to your studio daily. You don't get yeah. out as much, Squire. You don't see as many people. No, nope. um, but that agrees with you. You're okay with that. Well, I mean, I've got I've got the guys here. Like you know, I've, it's funny this this version of the sports department has basically been together since 1997 in this place. Yeah, well, amazing. Big, amazing. Big purge in '97. Jay Janauer was actually a news reporter who wanted to be a sports guy, so they switched him in. Barry Delay came in from Red Deer. He was a sportscaster in Red Deer for quite a while, eight nine years. So they they and other guys who've been here too. Brad Fay was here for a while. Steve Darling was a sportscaster for a while. Um, Dan Elliott, um, Asa now, uh, Chanel before. Lots of people. They are the reporters, so they kind of go out. So, yeah, I don't get to go out very much, but I don't mind it because I, I, you know, I do my own editing and I have to kind of, you know, move pieces around the chessboard. It's not, it, it's true. It's sometimes it's not as much fun. It'd be nice to be in the dressing room. So I have to live vicariously looking at the raw tape that comes back in. Yeah. All right. So it, while we're on the topic, um, and, you know, you may not have the direct answer of this, but I'm sure you're educated to some degree, is why do you think Global has stuck with this so well? Um, they are the shining light of local sports news on television. Local Nobody period. else is doing it. Local yeah. period, yeah. I mean, why do you think they're saying we're going to keep doing it? I mean, and God bless them for doing it, by the way. Well, you're right. God bless them for doing it. Um, <laughs> well, the news hour has a huge audience, and yeah. it always has, and... Believe me, you know, they know minute by minute what's working, what isn't working, mm-hmm. and sports works. It's, you know, it has an audience, it ha- it's sponsored, it's, it, it's not like, you know, the audience drops off the moment I show up or any of us show up. So there is an element to it. And the other thing, too, is they like to be, you know, we are the BC station, the local station, and, and sports is a big part of local. I mean, I know a lot of TV stations, not just in Canada, but in in the United States, you know, kind of started ditching their sports departments um, with the idea that, well, there's ESPN and we don't need, you know, but they don't do local. So they've always cherished local stories and, and, you know, being sort of a BC station and being everything to the viewer. And that includes sports. And you guys are charming, and you're you're all charming too. And, and honestly, and I don't mean that uh, as a throwaway comment. That matters too. You guys have to be able to. I think you guys are connected with the BC audience, and and so the entire department has is is sort of said, invite us into your house, and uh, we'll be good to you. And I think you guys have returned <laughs> yes. on that. Yeah, yeah it, it's and it's you know it, 
the show, I've always felt our show is a little bit different than other news programs. A lot of news programs are very stiff, and ours is not super stiff. And, and you know, I think that helps. In the, Wayne Cox used to have a great line um, when he was here. And he said, journalism, he goes, it's journalism on the typewriter, it's show business on TV. Mm-hmm. And it's true. I mean, if you just like if you straight read all the all the stories, it wouldn't be very interesting. Yeah. So you need a little showbiz in it. So that helps. Frankly, Squire, there's an authenticity to all of you guys and the station. Um, You know, I see Jay and Barry out there covering local amateur sports. Uh, You know, Blake and I in our new world have talked a lot about local and local coverage and how it's waning from the Toronto telecoms. But you guys are out there in the field. You're doing the stories. You got. Elements like This Is BC with Jay Durant. You got Global News Morning on weekends, which we watch and go, wow, like how ambitious that you're doing a morning show on the weekends. And as Blake said, you've connected with this community in this province. You guys should be very, very proud. Because uh-huh. here's the other thing. Coming from back east as 16 years ago, Squire, I was like, Global's the big station in town? Like there's no equivalent back east of Global being a no. player in the local news so you guys have done something special out here in well, dc of course global bought us um but yeah they i mean the, the great thing about global is they haven't they haven't messed with it they realize that there was there's a success here there's a heritage here i mean when i got here it was bc tv of course which yeah. you know and at that time too it was like um we were owned by the griffiths when i first got here the griffiths i mean the griffiths were all powerful they had you know they had us they had cknw and they had the Canucks, so they had everything. So, but Global has done very well in the handling of the acquisition, and, and Chorus runs this now. And they've done; they just haven't messed with the formula. Let it go. You've rattled off some big names here in your history. Um, who who had the? Anybody have a profound effect? Anybody really take you under their wing, or is it a, a you know a collective effort? Yeah, I guess it's a collective effort. I mean, you know, when I got here. Uh, in 92, I mean, really, all the legends were here. You mm-hmm. know, Tony was here, and Pamela was here, and Deb was here, and all the reporters that everybody knew was here. And, of course, the sports was Bernie and John and Barry. Um, but, it, yeah, it, there wasn't sort of one person who put, you know, their arm around me and said, I'm going to show you how it is, kid. It. Uh, I remember when I was in radio it, at CKO, which, again, doesn't exist, and there was this old guy, he's no longer with us, who said to me, he goes, so you want to be in radio? Eh? I said, yeah. He goes, you want to be good at it? I said, yeah. He goes, okay, shut up and listen. And that sort of stuck with me. Whoever mm-hmm. is telling you something who's a veteran, shut up and listen, because you might learn something from them. So that was sort of the way it was. And, and there were so many people around here, and there are now, but when I was young and first here, there were so many people around who were so good at what they did, not just in sports, but in news and reporting and editing and and producing that there was just so many people to learn from and the place the other thing about this place when i first got here and it's this way today i always think especially in a television station it might be the same in a newspaper office back in the day or a radio station whoever the lead pony is whoever the main guy or woman is that's who basically sets the tone for the entire room so tony was the man he was it he was the king But Tony didn't have airs about him. He talked to everybody. He was a good guy. He didn't have an ego. So if he didn't have one, you don't have one. So the whole room 
was so much better because of that. And Chris Galis and Sophie are the same way. There's no nobody, you know, walking around thinking they're all that. It's very much a team atmosphere. And that that translates onto the air. But when I noticed that immediately, Tony was not like that at all. So nobody was like that. So it made for a much better atmosphere. A good day off for Squire Barnes. Does it involve a golf course, a tennis court, or both? Well, I don't know if I could do both. <laughs> I, hear you're, I hear you're a golfer and a tennis player. Yes. Go, uh, I would say golf. I would say mm-hmm. golf. I, I'll tell you what a good day is, 36. Oh, wow. Really? That's a oh, good day. And mm. last year, uh, I, my two best golfing buddies are both school teachers. We played a course. I don't know if you guys have ever played a course in just over the line called Shuxon. I know it, but I haven't played it. Yeah, it's worth playing. Anyway, yeah. we played. Th- we played thirty six. It was very quick. There weren't many people out there. And I remember we got to the end, the eighteenth hole, and one of my friends turned to me and said, "Let's do fifty four. Okay, we're doing fifty four. Wow, it was a good day. Until oh, the wow. last nine, then we just started slashing it around and didn't care anymore. Yeah, how are how are the shoulders? How are the shoulders on hole fifty? Oh my yeah. god! It, the last the last nine was kind of like climbing Everest with your shorts on. It was, <laughs> it was, it was getting it was getting a bit rough. We thought it was a great idea. You know, this is a great idea. Let's play fifty four. We've got nothing mm-hmm. to do, and um, yeah, by the last nine, it seemed like a stupid idea, but we made it. Mm-hmm. So 36 is a great day. Well, speaking of golf, how much golf does Jan Hour actually play? Because every time I turn on your station, it's Jay on a golf course. Well, Jay Jay belongs to the Vancouver Club. He's a country club man. Mm-hmm. So he plays a lot of golf. He, I don't know how many times he plays a week. Um, but he does. He lives close to Vancouver Golf and Country Club, so he gets there to practice. He does the whole bit. Uh, he works... Saturday to Wednesday, and I always know on Wednesday when there's a men's night because he's trying to hurry and get out of here fast. <laughs> he's, ah, I'll do my story really quickly, and then I got to go. It's like, yeah, I know where you got to go. So, mm. But he does. He plays more than any of us does. Yeah. Uh, when I think of you and I think of, broad, of your broadcasting career, and please don't hold this against me, but I think of the famous show where yourself and Aaron Hen are announcing the Dream oh, yes. Lottery home yes. winner. And yeah. Blake and I worked right beside Aaron for years and absolutely adore her. And I could see her sort of looking at the piece of paper going, there's no way it's my colleague Barry DeLay. And she sort of pronounces his name differently. And then you Pronounce say, let me see that. <laughs> yeah, that's our guy. I remember, Barry. yes. That, that she called him, I think, Barry Dealey. That's and right. And then Barry Deli. And and she was up. So how it works here? She was up in the foyer, up in the, and they had like a big barrel that turned, and it was Sophie and I on the news show. Normally it was Randine, but Randine had the day off that day, and Sophie kind of was the one who noticed it first because I was kind of looking at my script, like, oh, what am I doing here? And she said, and then when she said, I said, well, where is it from? And she said, well, Barry Deli from Port Moody. It's like, okay, how many Barry Delays <laughs> live in Port Moody? One. That's how many. But I remember we picked up the phone and I called him on the air, uh, which for whatever crazy reason got him and I in the Ellen DeGeneres show. But um, apparently I didn't see this. The people from the charity were going nuts because I was breaking the protocol that I was calling the winner 
before they had a chance to even really verify who it was. Right. Luckily, it right. was the right guy. Wow. Yeah, all these lottery oh protocols, right? Yes, yeah. The yeah, so I, I didn't realize I was breaking protocol, but I did. We had him on the air. And, and then a, a couple of days later, we get a phone call from somebody named Ellen, believe it or not, who worked for Ellen and said, we'd like to fly you guys down and uh, interview you. Okay. Fly us oh down. We'll talk to Ellen. So. Oh, wow. Uh, moving on to more contemporary topics. What do you make of the Canucks these days? What do you make of the Canucks over the last 10 years, Squire? <laughs> I, I still, I, I really don't understand, even to this moment, why they had to make a coaching change last year. I don't get it. I mean, they weren't playing well, but you had Connor Bedard sitting at the end of the dark road, and he might possibly be yours if you just kept stumbling your way to the finish line. And I, I always kind of laugh. I have nothing against Rick Tockett, but I always kind of laugh when Patrick Alvine's excuse was, well, Rick was available like he wouldn't have been. It's not like he's the second coming of Scotty Bowman. I think he's available. Not even now, but at the end of the season. Make your move at the end of the year and just let it play out. And, you know, go ahead, finish in the bottom five. What the hell? You might get a shot at Connor Bedard. So I don't really, I don't know about you guys, but anytime a coach comes in and has a decent finish, I don't believe the momentum lasts through the summertime. Well, so Blake's with you maybe on that. Blake's with you on what that. What we saw. Yep. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is. I mean, how much of what happened last year, especially in the early portion of it, had to do with bad goaltending? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, Thatcher Demko wasn't himself at the start of the year. Then he gets hurt. It, you know, we, you asked way too much of Spencer Martin and whoever else they had, Delia and Silas. And it's, you know, when, when Talkett came in, basically the goaltending situations ironed itself out. It started to mm-hmm. get better. And it did help. I'm not saying the team didn't play better under him. They did. But... Was that just because of the change? Was that because of the goaltending? Was that because Talkett was putting in systems that were glorious and, and Bruce wasn't? I don't know. We'll find out, I guess, in a couple of months. Are they a playoff team this year? I don't think so. No. I think they might be close. You know, again, I, 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 it's easy to say. I, I just think everything with this team revolves around, in many ways, Demko. If Demko plays a ton of games and plays like he can – yeah, he could probably carry this team to a low playoff spot. You know, but then, you know, it's, it's so many things have to happen. You need another great year from Patterson. You need another great year from Hughes. This Heronic has to be able to do something. You know, is, is you know, is Kuzmenko going to continue that kind of a shooting percentage? Mm. Which I think was, I remember looking at this, his shooting percentage was the highest this century for a season, I believe. Crazy. Mm. So I don't know if that can continue. But anyway, it's like, yeah, if, if, if they get the goaltending, they have a chance. You've seen many ebbs and flows with the BC Lions over the years. What do you make of this Amar Doman owner and the impact he's had on the club here? Well, he's trying all the right things. I'll give him that. He, like, he, he really is trying. I mean, the, the Lions, we have all know the Lions are you know never going to have 60,000 people in that stadium. That's just those days are gone. And, you know, every CFL team has to fight the stigma of being not the NFL. But I I think that Amar Doman is doing everything he can. I mean, he is true to his word. When he took over, he said he'd spend the money, he'd try to make this better, and he is doing that. Uh, I mean, if you compare the Lions to the Whitecaps, strictly on marketing, 
the Lions are way ahead of the Whitecaps on that. I mean, to me, the Whitecaps have to do a lot more marketing to get people in that building. But the Lions are doing the right thing. Outside the, of uh, the, Go ahead. Bro. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, I was going to say, outside of the guy calling Whitecaps games, who you had some very nice yes, words for yes. before Blake we started this. Yes, does a very this. good job calling Whitecaps games, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it sounds like you follow the team. What's that, the Whitecaps? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I love to See, I grew up in this town. So I was there at Empire Stadium when the Whitecaps had 30-some-odd thousand people. And, you know, they were they were the big thing for a couple of years in this town. It was bigger than the Canucks, bigger than the Lions. They were it. So I'd love to see. I mean, it's like I think any of us would. It's great when, for all of us, it's great for our business when there's big crowds and people care deeply about whether the team wins or loses. I mean, I always say it's, you know, this is a Canucks town to be sure. And how do you know it's a Canucks town? Is because when they lose, people are pissed off. They're really pissed off. And, you know, we talked just a minute ago about the coaching change. That was a huge topic in this town. We all know mm-hmm. it. It's like some were for it, some were against it, but it, it, it had a lot of emotion. You don't, I'd like to see that kind of emotion with the Lions and Whitecaps. I'd like it, to see it, that same kind of feeling when something happens with them. It's a bit of a warning, isn't it, about the, uh, the dangers of losing for any franchise, and I think the Canucks have to be wary of this too. Is that the apathy does grow, and, and if you if you don't show some direction for some time, um, people will stay away. I mean, the, the Lions are a good team. The Whitecaps are a good team this year, but yeah. they're still going to have to work and fight tooth and nail to get people in there. Well, there's a lot of things for people to do now. I mean, they could just stare at their phones and be entertained all day. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, but. You know, you're right, Blake. If you go back in time, Canucks, in the 80s, when I first started covering them, you could have shot a cannon into some of those sections at the Coliseum and you wouldn't have hit anything but chair. So it has happened before where people just start to disappear, where they just say, we're not going to pay this kind of money to watch this. And, you know, maybe, maybe that's the thought process in the Aquilini family who have never been keen on doing the full rebuild because I think they want a team to get to the playoffs and they get playoff money and then they try to stay relevant. Maybe that's the thinking they've gone about it the wrong way, obviously, but, and probably did need a rebuild years ago when Trevor Linden first took over. But yeah, it's happened in the past where the Canucks have lost a ton of fans and they played to a half empty arena for a long time in the eighties. So it's happened before. Let me play devil's advocate on that squire. Um, sure. Just because they've been dreadful for the last decade, the crowds really haven't dipped below a 15, no. They haven't. 60. You're right. There's enough money in this town. Every Canucks game is an event. Vancouver's an event town, and the scene in BC crowd is going to be there, win, lose, or draw. Do Do you think that's the new reality? Do you think the Aquilini see that and go, "Well, we don't really get punished for being." bad so let's try and make the playoffs every year and get that playoff revenue because we're not going to suffer the lowest of lows anymore you might be right i mean you're it's true they've been bad enough for a long time to have qualified to be treated the way the teams in the 80s were treated correct and they haven't really been you know abandoned at the rink the way those teams were and interestingly enough back then the tickets were a lot more reasonable than they are now. I mean, it's a much more expensive 
uh, night out if you're going to a Canucks game. Now, you are right, but I do think there is a breaking point. You can't do that forever and expect people to start filling the building. And you know yeah. what? I may, Maybe what it takes, and it, it hasn't happened, but if suddenly the Whitecaps and Lions became a big deal, would that, would that soak up some of those people and would they start to abandon the Vancouver Canucks? I don't know, but mm. you are correct that the Canucks have been very fortunate that people still are, you know, breaking out the big money and going and watching them despite what they've delivered the last number of years. But they're right on that but, line. That 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 wait list is gone. You know, remember that wait list was so yeah. long. They're right on that line right now. So, yeah, I think so. As I said, we've seen it before. It's a different mm-hmm. time. It's a different, you know, a different generation. But you can't do it forever. You just can't and expect people to keep paying big money. Okay, is it the game show part now? Is this game show time? It's game show time. Rapid fire with Squire Barnes of Global BC. We need your short. What am I playing for? You're playing for a round at Northlands with Blake and I. Oh, Oh, wow. Is that punishment or a gift? I'm not sure. Depends which way you look at it. It may be a punishment for you guys. It's a gift for me. Okay. Okay. We're giving you free tickets to any Grand Slam, Tennis Grand Slam. Which one are you going to? Wimbledon. Best Michael J. Fox movie? Back to the Future. The first one? Yes. True or false, you had an uncle who worked for NASA? Yes, true. What happened to your rocket science career? <laughs> Never got off the ground. <laughs> <laughs> Galus Baldry Zussman. In a game of two-on-two basketball, who do you want as your teammate? Well, that's easy. Galus. How many strokes would Jan Hour need to give you to make a competitive golf match? Uh, I would say ten. Have you ever teased Christy or Madriga on air for inaccurate weather forecasts? No. That Have would be ever- cruel. Have you ever wanted to? If it ruined my golf game, yeah. But I've never done it. When people meet Galus, what are they most struck by? His height, his charm, his good looks? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I'm going to say his height because he is quite tall. Which global personality is most deserving of winning the next Dream Home Lottery? You're talking to him. Yeah. Yeah, right. (laughs) Thanks for playing, Squire Barnes. You're quite welcome. Happy Hour brought to you by Yellow Dog Brewing, Neighborhood Brewing, Workshop Spirits, and very excited to announce the release of Yellow Dog's very first mix pack, Box of Tricks. Choose between the classic Play Dead IPA, the award-winning Rough West Coast IPA, and two brand new beers, Growl Extra Pale Ale and Tug of War New Zealand IPA hitting the shelves on Tuesday, November 7th. And at the end of a busy workday, treat yourself to a Yellow Dog neighborhood or workshop spirit. Sick Harrison Price from Wall Center and a presentation of Applewood Auto Group. Applewood Kia the top Kia dealerships in all of Canada, meaning there's constantly stock being replenished even on the brand new 2023 Nero 
EV. That EV stands for electric vehicle, by the way, Matt. Uh, They're all the rage. Mm -hmm. $44.9 entry price. Limited edition ones for $52.9. You can get one for 6.49% financing for up to 84 months. Go check it out at Applewood Kia. Uh, Incredibly amusing conversation with Squire Burns. Uh, I, I love the quick wit. I have always appreciated that on set there. Uh, as he said to us, you know, it's a combination of journalism and of show business. And um, boy, do they excel in walking that line. It's a difficult line to walk. A, a line that gets mentioned in Jim Robson coming up, by the way, mm-hmm. which is an interesting point to look out for. But yeah, he's been great. And you hear who the uh, voices were that guided him, and you understand where a lot of that dry wit came from working around mm-hmm. guys like... Barry McDonald and Eric Dwyer and, and right. others that also shared that same uh, penchant for wit. Yeah, journalism on the typewriter, show business on TV, yeah. uh, and boy, did they ever do it well. Who would have guessed Squire with glasses and a mustache? I, like, honestly, I can't even picture I'm it. I'm photoshopping it in my mind, and it's hysterical. <laughs> you know who I'm, I'm thinking of is the older brother in Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> that's, that's what I've got in my head right now. He's made it all the way to the Ellen DeGeneres show, of course, uh, thanks to Barry DeLay and the Dream Lottery. And uh, i I gotta, I got to give him, and I've got to give Global credit to have a group of on-air personalities who have been that intact for that long is not just achievement in today's media landscape that is stunning achievement uh so good on all of them and good on the management there for seeing fit knowing they had a good thing Mm -hmm. and rolling with it all right bodog line of the daytime again and check our twitter handle and youtube for today's Bodog poll question, Bodog your source for casino games, poker strategy, and sports odds. John Tavares, I think we're starting to see the decline in fantastic player, still a useful player, but could I see some injuries this year? Could I see him turning into more of a setup guy than a finisher? Yeah, I could see all of those things. I'm going under 30 and a half goals for the Toronto Maple Leaf Center on your Bodog line of the day. Well, Blake, we've done several of these Vancouver Media Legends shows, and look, the whole series would have been incomplete without our next guest. 88 years young, he is the original voice of the Vancouver Canucks, but uh, of course, very aligned with our local baseball club, and we'll have that discussion as well. It's our distinct pleasure to welcome in Mr. Jim Robson to Sikharison Price. Jim, thanks. Good to be here. Jim. Good to be anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, you say good to be anywhere, but I see you all the time at Nat Bailey Stadium in your seats just below home plate or just behind home plate. And, Jim, the other thing is I see a whole bunch of well-wishers who go on up to you and want a photo or a chit-chat. Uh, tell me what it's like to go to the ballpark and have all these people want to come up and chit-chat with you. Well, I don't go to the night games anymore, but I do go to quite a few afternoon games, and thanks to uh, 
Jeff Moody. I have great seats right back of the plate, and I like to take guests and uh, family members. So, and I enjoy, enjoy the job they do there. I mean, Andy Dunn and Alan Bailey, they do a terrific job. And I sat next to a, uh, an agent at the last game I was at, and she said, this is the best ballpark in this league. And the players I've talked to, the pitchers, the other teams that sit in front of me at the scout seats, they say this is the loudest stadium in the league. And uh, it's a great ballpark, and it's been kept up very well. And uh, I enjoy going there. Do you feel like you're? In, do you feel like? Sometimes a young fan will say, "What are you doing at a baseball game?" And I have to explain that I, well, I spent about 12 years in the ballpark when it was AAA Pacific Coast League. Do you feel like you're walking through a time warp, just like we do when you walk inside that stadium still? Yeah, it looks different. Of course, they brought the fences in. They have the porch in left field, which I don't like as much. I watched a game out there, and it's too far away from the action. Uh, but uh, so the park is different, and uh, way back in the 50s, it was 9,200 seats with bleachers wow. from the base down to the corners, and uh, quite different than it is now, but uh, of course, they've done a great job with the condition of the field and bringing in new grass, and uh, they do everything right, It's uh, and it's, you know, a lot of features for the kids and the chicken dance and all this kind of stuff, which is wasn't in the 50s no but, no <laughs> did you enjoy call, did, did you enjoy calling baseball as much as hockey a big part did you enjoy calling baseball as much as hockey well baseball was a long season i mean in those days there was no split season and if you were out of the pennant race in july and there was 500 people in the ballpark those were long years and and you know in the early 60s i did the mounties baseball the lions football the canucks hockey and four kids. I mean, it, <laughs> and and what happened in 1969? I applied for a major league baseball job, which was a terrible mistake. What was I thinking? Four kids and a mortgage. I tried to get the job with the Seattle Pilots, wow. and I got a nice rejection letter from Dewey Soriano, which I still have. Fortunately, I was rejected because the next year. The pilots moved to Milwaukee. Right. They wouldn't have taken me. And the NHL came to Vancouver. So if I'd got that pilot's job, someone else would have been the voice of the Canucks, and my whole life would have been different. Wow. No kidding. Well, speaking of that life, born in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, and were you not even age of majority, I understand, Jim, when you were first started covering sports at CJAV in Port Alberni? Well, I uh, always wanted to be a sports announcer from the time I was about six years old, listening to Foster Hewitt in front of a big DeForest Crosley radio in Prince Albert. And it was always the Maple Leafs. I didn't like the Maple Leafs. I liked the Boston Bruins. It had Frankie Brimzik in goal, and they had the, the, uh, the big line, you know, that was so big in Boston in those days, and they won the Stanley Cup in 39 and 41 when I was a kid. So then we moved to British Columbia, and my hockey career ended there. The rink in the backyard didn't work on Barnston Island at a dairy farm. But anyway, I always wanted to be, and then when I was in grade 11 in high school, I had a, a visit to New Westminster with Bill Hughes, who was the manager at that time at CKNW. And he said, come back and see me in your last year of high school. So I did, and he let me do an audition, and he gave me the names and addresses of the managers of seven radio stations around BC. This was 1952. 
I was 17. And in those days, the stations in the small towns, most don't exist anymore, would hire a, a young apprentice or something for the summer. So I sent letters around. Some didn't reply. Most rejected. Chilliwack, CHWK rejected. Uh, Kelowna, come on up and do an audition. Impossible. Vernon rejected. But Port Alberni offered me a job. And I went over there and met the manager and I got my job at $100 a month. And the sports announcer at CJAV, a 250-watt radio station there, had just left. Bob Hall, his name was. He was quite prominent in BC basketball and Salmon Arm later on. And Bob left, and so they didn't have a sports announcer, so all I was doing at the start was writing commercials. That was my job. And a 16-year-old high school girl taught me how to write commercials. A 16-year-old? Oh, my gosh. And so, but they said, go ahead and do the sports, you know. So I, I did the sports cast, and then come the fall, they said, well, we do basketball here. Basketball's big in Alberni, and we do play-by-play. Can you, do you know basketball? So of course, I was in the Maple Ridge High School basketball team getting waxed by mission every year. And so I did the play-by-play of the Alberni Athletics Senior A basketball team when it meant something. And they won the Canadian Championship in 1955, and I did the play-by-play, and uh, they had great basketball teams coming in from Seattle mostly, American teams. The great Elgin Baylor played two games at the old Alberni Athletic Hall. Get out! Night, 38 points the next night, and there was no three-point shot or no time clock. And he was between schools, leaving Idaho State to go to Seattle University, and eventually led them to the NCAA final. But those, that's the kind of players that were coming in to play Alberni. Was this so, like semi-pro or was it fully amateur? They were local. They got jobs. McMillan Bodell would give them a, a sort of a job. It's like the hockey teams did in the Okanagan. Right. They'd give a job and they'd play. Yeah. They're the, the basketball players. They brought in a playing coach, captain. They used to be captain of the Seattle U. Uh, Elmer Spidel. He was the ideal guy. A fine coach, a good person, loved became part of the community and he was a full-time coach and a playing coach I was in the hall for the kids to go and practice and the basketball was good and they you know they had a memorable playoff in 55 the Vancouver Cloverleafs were a legendary team at that time and the Alberni and Clover and the Cloverleafs went seven games and the seventh game went overtime at UBC War Memorial Gym which was standing room only and Alberni won it by a single point in overtime to go on to play the Edmonton Town Haulers, who had quite a few Edmonton Eskimo football players in their lineup. And then they won that series because they were all played in Alberni and the visiting teams couldn't win there. The lighting was poor, the crowd tripped up, the officials running on the sidelines. and. It was an unusual situation, but it was a lot of fun to be. It's a real true home court advantage there in Alberta. It's a real shame you can't remember any details about all this, uh, Jim. (laughs) That was remember the old thing. Don't ask me what happened last week. (laughs) But anyway, and then in 1956, I'm sitting in the dugout at a baseball team. The Alberta had a good baseball team, and I was didn't get to play much. So the catcher named Ted Kranitz says, my son-in-law, or my brother-in-law, is a sports announcer in Vancouver, and he's going to hire an assistant. You should apply for the job. So I did, and it was Bill Stevenson. So he hired me as his assistant. And that's when they did baseball, football, hockey, 
So when Bill went to the Grey Cup in Toronto in 1956, I did my first pro hockey game, the Vancouver Canucks and the Edmonton Flyers, a good Detroit farm team coached by Bud Boyle. Wow. 1956 at the old Vancouver Forum at the corner of Hastings and went through the building still there. And so that was my first hockey game, but then when uh, Bill went on an assignment of some kind, like the Lions training camp in Kelowna, I would do the Mountie baseball. And we did the full season of the Pacific Coast League. When Vancouver came in first, Los Angeles and San Francisco were still in the Coast League. It was a big move for Vancouver. And then, of course, the Dodgers and the Giants came in from the East, and everything changed in the Coast League. But it was very good baseball, and I was fortunate to be doing quite a few of the games. Was, was, that, when, I, was that when you were doing the road games with the, uh, the feed and the sound effects and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, and we had a genius. He's... I think he's still living in Victoria, named Ron Robinson, who did the sound effects. And we did not use a pencil and a block of wood like you've read about guys doing reconstructed sounds. He had the, all the sounds recorded in the ballpark and put them on carts. Ah, he had really? everything, but a, everything but a broken bat hit he had. So the sound you heard was le legitimate sounds of the fastball in the catcher's mitt or a foul ball back to the screen or whatever and we were a half an inning behind and uh, we and of course we did all the games and this team was uh, playing uh, double headers on Sunday you'd be sitting in the studios in Broad Street doing a double header but when Bill left in 1960 to go to CFRB in Toronto then I moved into his chair so I got to do Hockey, football, baseball. Did five years of the Lions. But in those days, two stations did all the CFL games in each city. CKNW did it with Jim Cox. So they had the audience, and I was at CKWX. But I did five years of Lions football. Then in 1965, the CFL, with their advertising, people got smart and put the bids in up. And so only one station per market started doing that. And we lost them football rights in 65, but that was okay with me because I was doing baseball and hockey, and uh, <laughs> and uh, football was the toughest to do. Yeah. I mean, uh, you got so many players, you got to know something about, and those days only had a 34-man roster too, but so it, it was the toughest sport, I thought. But I did a football game in Calgary on a Saturday afternoon, and the next night I was did a hockey game in Portland, Oregon. Wow. It was so ridiculous. So much... I, did, I went to the Grey Cup in 1960, uh, 1966, I think it was the Riders versus the Riders, uh, and uh, after the, as soon as the game was over, I got a taxi from Empire Stadium to the ferry terminal at Tawasson and took the ferry to Victoria to do a hockey game that night. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was, uh, uh, it was Riders versus Riders at uh, Empire Stadium. In fact, it was the first Grey Cup for those uh, green riders. Mm. Uh, in 1966. Yeah, Jim? So it was an interesting time, but it was tough. My wife was terrific. We had four kids and she was at home and I was traveling. And, and But I enjoyed the work, let's face it. It was what you wanted to do all your life. Yeah. Blake's already commented on your memory. Uh, remember seeing you at Red Robinson's tribute at the Commodore back in March and you walked straight up to Jeff Patterson and I upon arrival and then started telling us stories about just how big Red was and citing the uh, city track and field championships and how that was always a massive event, not just for the track and field, but because Red was there spinning records and entertaining all the teens. 
Greg uh, Douglas said to me, you know, Matt, going into this, understand the man has the most amazing memory I've ever come across. Is it just natural, Jim? Do you do any memory exercises or anything like that? How do you explain being able to remember so much that has happened in your extraordinary life in such great detail? Well, like you guys and a lot of people that follow sports, you can remember a lot of things. As a kid, you could remember the batting averages of major league players. And there were only eight teams in each league. And, you know, so I, it's easy to remember the stuff from a long ways back, it seems. I can give you the lineup. The Vancouver Mounties in 1959 had an infield of Brooks Robinson at third base, a Hall of Fame. Ronnie Hansen at shortstop, Marv Breeding at second, and Buddy Barker at first all went to the major leagues. But Brooks Robinson, the, one of the greatest mm-hmm. third basemen of all time, his career almost ended in Vancouver. Okay. He went off at third base to field a foul ball. They had a screen in front of the dugout at third base side with metal hooks holding it up, sticking out. As he reached up and catched the ball, the hook caught him just by the elbow, ripped all the tendons from his elbow to his wrist, blood pouring out of his arm. A Dr. B. Arneson was sitting in the box seats, went through that little door by the dugout, went on, wrapped his arm in a towel, took him out to the parking lot, drove Brooks Robinson to Royal Columbian Hospital, where Dr. B. Arneson worked, stitched him all up, he was on the disabled list for about a month. Then he came back, hitting about 340. And after about 45 games in Vancouver, went to Baltimore, then to the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. wow. But those were great times. So bring me back to 1970 then. Now the Vancouver Canucks are moving into the big leagues. They're, they're moving to the National Hockey League. What did you think at the time? Did you did you know this will be the big team in our city and in our province? And tell us oh, about oh, your association and, and how you got over to the Canucks playbook, uh, play-by-play booth in the NHL. Well, I hope I'm not going too long in these stories. But in 1970, I'm doing the Western League Canucks, and the Punch Imlock and Joe Crozier had loaded the team, and they had very good Western League teams because they thought they were going into the NHL. With them, but they, in the following exchanges of the ownership and everything, they got bounced out. But anyway, I got a call in March of 1970 and asked, could I go to to Oakland and do the radio play-by-play of a Toronto Maple Leaf, Oakland Seals NHL game, my first NHL game. I said, oh sure, I'd be happy to do that. Foster Hewitt didn't want to go to Oakland in March to see two teams missing the playoffs. So I go down to Oakland and the afternoon of the game, the phone rings in my hotel room, and I get told, go to the rink early. The Maple Leafs have just traded Tim Horton. Wow. So I get my your tape recorder, and I head for the Oakland Coliseum, which I had done some Western League games in. So now I go to the elite dressing room, hammer on the door, wait. Joe Scroll, the trainer, comes to the door, said, yeah, what do you want? He didn't know who it was, of course. No one did that. So I said, I'd like to speak to Tim Horton. I've been asked him, no, uh, he's too busy right now. Bang, slams the door in my face. So I wait a while, I hammer on the door again. Joe Scrow comes to the door again. I said, I'm waiting to see if I can talk to Tim Horton. Of course, there was no scrum, there was no media around. And so he said, no, he's tied up right now. So now I'm starting to worry. 
we're coming close to warm-up time. I want to watch both teams in the warm-up. My first NHL game. Still no Tim Horton. Now the door opens. A broad-shouldered guy in a top coat and shirt and tie walks by. It's Tim Horton. He walks across the foyer and goes into an area underneath the stands where the Warriors' seats were stored for basketball. Tim Horton, me, following him. Tim, Tim, I call his name. He doesn't turn around. He keeps walking. Tim, finally he turns around. I said, I'm Jim Robson from Vancouver and I'm doing the Leaf game on radio tonight. They'd like me to interview you for the first intermission. And he looked at me and there were tears pouring down his face. He was crying. He had just said goodbye to Dave Keon, George Armstrong, Norm Allman. All these Maple Leafs that he had played with. In those days, stars didn't get traded. So I chickened out. Non-professional, but I said, Well, Tim, it does not look like a good time to do an interview. Good luck in New York. Now what? I've got no interview. My first game. But the general manager of the Leafs who made the trade was Jim Gregory. And I knew Jim because he had coached the Western League Vancouver Canucks one year, and we traveled together. So I went, found him in the rink, and I said, Jim, I got this problem. I didn't interview Jim because he was so upset, and he's just about to catch the plane to New York. Would you come on and talk about the trade? So he saved my bacon. Oh, so nice. In the first intermission, came on to talk about the trade. But uh, that was my first NHL game. And then, of course, I knew that was like an audition. The McLaren Advertising wanted to hear my job. And then come the next summer, Bill Hughes came to me at a luncheon or something and said, would you leave CKWX to do NHL hockey? I said, of course I would. So both WX and NW applied for the rights to broadcast NHL hockey. And I was told later that my name was in both presentations. <laughs> but NW, who had the great promotion department, with John Poole and they were they were the king of the hill and so they got the rights so now I'm negotiating to do NHL hockey and the money wasn't that great I was a very poor negotiator Mel Cooper was the manager then and he was offering me much like I was making working around the clock at, at WX so Alan McEachern was the president of the BC Lions a very prominent man in BC law uh, later on and Al asked me one day, how's the negotiations going on the hockey? I said, well, not that great, Al, I said. And so he had arranged a luncheon with me and, and Cooper at the university club, which no longer exists, by the uh, Marineville. So we have a nice luncheon. Nobody talks about my situation at all. It doesn't come up. So we're leaving. And after lunch, we're on the sidewalk, and McKechnie, who had a lot of clout in the city, turned and said, Mel, you could do better on that offer to Jim. Went up $3,000 with that one line. Oh, wow. You never sent me a bill either. <laughs> but anyway, so I, so I got the NHL hockey. But my contract was not, again, I didn't negotiate. I didn't have an agent or anything. But I had to pay Jim Cox $125 a game out of my pocket when I did Hockey Night in Canada and he oh. did the radio. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. I had to work for a month in the summer while Al Davidson went on vacation. I did all the sports. 
and that, that was part of my contract. Wow. But anyway, it was NHL hockey, and uh, I got to do some Hockey Night in Canada games, and of course, and including the very first one ever. But it's a good trivia for Vancouver sports. Who did the radio play-by-play for the Canucks' first NHL game? Danny Gallivan. Wow. CKNW brought him in to do the first game. He and Al Davidson did radio, and I did the TV. Wow. So, wow. the start of it. Well, and, and of course, that hockey night you covered Stanley Cups as, as well, Jim. Um, and closer to home, boy, uh, I still hear people talking about how great it was to listen. And I know you had many a broadcast partner, but listening to you and Tommy Larshide call the games over the years, what was the secret of the chemistry that the two of you had together in that broadcast well, booth? you'll have to ask Tom about this. But it was a tough sled at the start. I had worked alone all those years. Yes. I was old school. And Tom used to be frustrated because he was personality. And he used to say to me, Robson, loosen up. This is not World War III. We are in the entertainment business. Entertainment business? I never thought of myself as an entertainer. But Tom was an entertainer. And he was right. He changed the sound of hockey broadcasts in this market. And he and John Shorthouse, and now Shorthouse and Garrett, are entertainers. Mm -hmm. They get it. And it bothers me sometimes when I hear Shorty and John talking about what they had in the pregame meal or their their daughters in the stands or or the family had a good mark in mathematics or whatever. We never talked about (laughs) stuff like that. But this is part of being personalities and it's entertainment. And I was old school, and I thought I was more of a reporter than an entertainer. Jim, talk about talk about the '70s when they had struggles, or gosh, right into the '80s for that matter. Um, and particularly if you were alone, but even if you had Tommy or anybody else sitting beside you, how hard was it to to broadcast year after year of losing during that time? You had to wait a long time to call exciting. Uh, seasons, if you will. You had exciting games from time to time, I'm sure, but to to call a winner, you had to wait a while. What was it like to, to grind out uh, you know, non-playoff years and, and losing seasons with the Canucks? Well, today people say, oh, well, uh, look at Vegas. They win the Cup after only six years. Look at Seattle in the playoff second year. The way that they paid $65 million to get in the NHL, they'd better get a competitive team. The old days when a team expansion came in, they got nothing to pick from. And the expansion, remember the records of the Washington Capitals? Oh, and the oh New York so, so you accepted the losing, but you know the travel was extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. We used to have three seven-game road trips in the East every year. When the boat show, the home show, and ice capades moved into the Coliseum, <laughs> you yeah. would play Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday in four different cities. And then you'd come home after playing Sunday night in New York, not uh, charter flights. Sunday mo- or Monday morning, early, you'd take the bus to the airport, fly New York to Toronto, hang around the Toronto airport, fly Toronto to Vancouver, five hours. Shuffle into a bus and go to a practice Monday afternoon. Imagine what kind of a practice that would be. And then play Tuesday night against a team that was 20 points better than you in the stand. Yeah. I mean, it was tough in the 70s, it really was. 
But as far as the broadcasts go, I think Tom and I, our peak was the 94 playoffs. Yeah. And it was the toughest conditions to broadcast in Madison Square Garden. We were up in the stands at one end of the rink, near the back row, right around the spectators, four big guys in front of us wearing Ranger sweaters. And when they came back to tie in game six, they thought they were, game five, I guess it would have been, they thought they were gonna win the cup. These big guys put their fists right in our face and said, I'm gonna win the cup now, you know. And Tom was gonna take them on. And I pulled Tom back and I said, Tom, if they act up, we're in trouble. There's no help around here. So, and they went to Mr. Bettman and complained about our position. And of course, there was so much TV. There was feeds from Sweden and Russia and the, and the Madison Square Garden and the West, and the Hockey in Canada, French and English. So the visiting radio were up in the rafters along with Kenny Albert was doing the games for USA radio or something and a french canadian radio crew was sitting next to us we didn't even have a monitor to start the series oh. so and but tom and i uh, were traveling at the end of that series that season we were just exhausted i mean because what happened in now's playoffs in 94 both toronto and dallas made a mistake they had an option during the playoffs to play the first two games at home play three games in Vancouver and two back home or play like they do now two at home two on the road and then one 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 after that both Dallas and Toronto went for the two three two option both series ended in five, five games, games. Yep. the Canucks winning on home ice if the, the Leafs were had three nothing in game five in that series too so if Toronto had won that game five, we'd go back to to Toronto for game six and say, look, it makes quite a difference. Yep. So, but the Canucks went all the way to the final and came so close. Yeah. I thought they were going to win the cup. Because the day of the, the cup, I'm walking through Madison Square Garden from our hotel, right by Bryant Park and the famous New York City uh, library. And I got my briefcase and I'm walking along by myself and I hear sirens and it's a motorcycle, New York City motorcycle crew, police, uh, uh, escorting the Vancouver Connect bus. And they're going to Madison Square Garden. The bus is going along and I'm looking up and here's Tim Hunter, who didn't get to play in the final, great guy. And he's sitting in my seat in the bus. But anyway, and I give him the thumbs up. He gives me the thumbs up, I said. Canucks are going to win the cup. Well, it came within a goal. Right? Mm, yeah. I well, it came within a post, uh, mm-hmm. Jim. Uh, it was. It, it was so that for Tom and I, that was. And after that, I, I quit doing the radio. Uh, Pat Quinn told me they were going to split the radio and TV because he didn't like this. We were doing simulcasts on BC TV and NW. Yep. So I knew that if I stuck with the radio, someone else would come in and do TV. And TV was coming more prominent all the time. So I quit the radio, although Tom and uh, Shane P. McConnell were doing a football game when they announced I had retired, but I didn't retire, I just quit the radio. So, but I made the mistake of the first year I was getting paid by the game and there was no hockey in 1990. All right. (laughs) So it wasn't until January where I got to do a game. But anyway, I did local TV. But I did that for four years, I guess, and then in 99, which in those years was disastrous, even with McGilney and Burry and 
and Messier, they couldn't get to the playoffs. Anyway, at the end of the 99 season, I told my wife going out the door, last home game of 99, this is it, this is my last game. I didn't tell anybody else, just mm -hmm. my wife. So I did the game, that was it. Yeah. I decided to quit. At 47 years in broadcasting, and I packed it in there. But as all those years of losing, you know, there were still highlights. The first year Canucks were a competitive group. In December of 1970, one of the highest scoring lines in the NHL was Orland Kurtenbach at center ice, who had been sort of a tough fourth line center with the Rangers in Boston. And the wingers were Wayne Mackey and Murray Hall, a career minor leaguer. They were one of the highest scoring lines in the league. And the next line was Andre Boudria with Roser Paymont and Paul Popeil, and that was a good line. So the and the Canucks were tough. Pat Quinn and I mean they had a, a competitive team. They had three goaltenders, which didn't work very well. But Charlie Hodge, George Gardner, and Dunk Wilson, who I thought was going to be yeah great. And uh, so so even though they were they wound up sixth, I think Detroit was behind them in the standing, but. There were still lots of highlights, and the rink was full. And it was and then they started to sag in, in the mid '70s, and the crowds dropped off. You know, we had crowds of seven thousand that come up in. Yeah, which and, uh, and the WHA came along, but the Blazers couldn't outdo the Canucks because the year Phil Maloney took over, the Canucks made the playoffs, and it, they were in a weak division, but they still made the playoffs. And and the uh, Blazers wound up leaving town, but. It was a good time, even with losses, and I admire hockey players so much. I like all athletes, but hockey players play a, such a difficult sport in a confined space. There's no out of bounds, and you got to have a lot of courage. Some have more than others, but they've all got courage, and it, it, they play it on skates, on ice, and a lot of people can't stand up on skates. And the critics say there that, you know, it's, I used to argue with Jim Taylor, who was, uh, of course, a memorable coverage of the football, especially. I'd say, Jim, hockey players have an extra talent. They have to be great skaters just yeah. to play in the field. Whereas you play any other sport, you're on your feet. You can fake, you can pivot in soccer, in lacrosse, in a basketball, in football. And you're on your feet. It's more natural. But in hockey, you got to be a great skater, and they are. Got a balance so on a quarter-inch blade of steel, uh, right, at all times. And uh, if anything, Jim, I think this conversation has proved you needed an agent, sir, <laughs> during several oh, yes. negotiations. Uh, but amazing stories there, particularly about 94. And, and one of my questions here was, Adams, Adams, Greg Adams, or he'll play, you know he'll play. Are those the, those the two most famous calls that people ask you about? Is there anything well, probably, else? Well, they probably are, but I'm, I really mean this. They were not great calls. <laughs> I've heard yeah. you say this well, before, really, they, that you're not entirely well, satisfied well, with either of them. Well, Adams, I couldn't think of anything else to say. So I said Greg Adams about four times. And then when Trevor Linden, and that's so unfair uh, that he had been elbowed by uh, Graves. I didn't see who it was, but it was Graves. Knocked him to the ice, and he was nose bleeding, and he's down on the ice, 
Mark Messier comes off the bench in the last minute of a 4-1 game. And he, Messi gives him a cross-check in the back of the head and drove his face into the ice. Sergio Manasso, one of the leaders of the team, standing at the bench, wanted to jump over and grab Messier, and they held him back. But I saw Linden on the ice, and then he gets staggers up, and he struggles to the bench, so I say, you know, he's going to play in Madison Square Garden. I should have said, just wound it up, he's going to play at Madison Square Garden for the Stanley Cup. Something like that. But I sort of said, oh, the game is over. Meaning that game was over. Mm-hmm. I should have said, well, the sixth game is over. And then the, that would have been much better. Uh, simplicity reigns sometimes, and, and that was perfect. Don't worry. Yep. Yep. Um, we would be remiss if we didn't ask you, uh, what do you make of these modern Canucks, Jim? It hasn't been a great decade of hockey over no. at Rogers Arena. What are your thoughts on this club? Well, I was afraid you would ask me, but... Uh, I think they'll be competitive and interesting, but we'll have a tough time making the plans. You, you look at the division they're in and the central division that they have to, if they don't finish in the top three, then they got to, who they're going to face in that division. There's about five or six good teams in that division. Now in the Pacific, I guess it's uh, Vegas and Edmonton that everybody thinks would be one, two. And uh, the, now you go to... L.A. had a good year last year. Mm-hmm. They should be good again. Uh, Seattle made the playoffs. They, sh- they expect to do it again. That's four teams. And now they're at Calgary. Nobody really knows what's going to happen in Calgary, but they still have Markstrom. They've got that great leader on defense in Tanneth. They've got some good forwards. They're going to be competitive. So that leaves Vancouver, Anaheim, San Jose which looks like right now the three teams that will be in the out of the playoff picture. But the Canucks seem to have improved their defense. They uh, are counting on some improvements from the crop of forwards, but the key is Demko in goal. He has to stay healthy. He has to play like we know he can. I know Seelofs is a good prospect, but I think they'd probably leave him in Abbotsford and let him play a lot of games. So. Demko has to stand on his head night after night, which he's shown he can do. So I think they'll be interesting and competitive, but I think they'll have a tough time making the play. Pretty astute. Pretty astute. Well, I look forward to his uh, weekly spot on Superson Price later this season. Uh, Jim, this has been marvelous. Uh, Thank you for the time here. Thank you for all the uh, stories and being available. We will see you at Nat Bailey Stadium because, of course, the Seas are going to the playoffs and we got a lot of games left here in August. And, of course, we'll see you at Rogers Arena come hockey season. Thanks for the Thanks time. Thanks for stopping by. All right. Thanks a lot. Garrison Price from Wall Center. You can text us, 778-402-9680. It's the Great Clips text message inbox. Great Clips. It's going to be great. So I had never heard that story. That Which one? Well, <laughs> yeah. There's 20 in there. Uh, for sure. And some very nice words uh, about Tommy Larshot. I thought that was uh, touching. Uh, I... I I knew the story that he was not particularly satisfied with Adams, Greg Adams, or mm-hmm. with he'll play, you know he'll play. No play-by-play guys are ever satisfied right. with it, their most uh, famous It's true. It, it is incredible. 
um, the Tim Horton story was, mm-hmm. speaking of incredible, I mean, Horton with tears in his eyes and Jim Gregory filling in, and the only reason he's there is Foster Hewitt did not want to go to Oakland. Called two losing teams in March of 1970. <laughs> That's good power to have. That is great power to have. Well, I'm guessing there was no Toronto, Oakland, or Toronto, San Francisco direct back then either. No. Well, a couple hops and skips. I was going to say. I mean, there were times there when he was talking about the 59 Mounties and Brooks Robinson where I kind of felt like I was listening to Paul Harvey, and now you know the rest of the story. <laughs> uh, not to mention Elgin Baylor playing in Port Alberni, British Columbia. I mean, like, what a story that stunning. is. Yeah. Stunning. I mean, we've come so far. And needless to say, so has Jim Robson. But no, the story I'm referencing, Blake, that it could have been a much different life for him and a much different experience for Vancouver Canucks fans. If he becomes voice of the Seattle Pilots. If he becomes <laughs> voice of the Seattle Pilots. And and then, of course, he asked the question, would Jim Robson have gone on to be a Milwaukee broadcasting legend? Would Bob Euchre have been his color man at some point? Well, he said himself, he said, I don't think they would have taken me. He, so, he, you know, he, well, you never know. You never know. He's very modest, but right. But those are different times where, like, hauling people across the country, mm-hmm. you know. I don't know yeah, Ben I, Scully I mean, went from Brooklyn to L.A., you never sure know. Did. Yeah. Who would have said hello to all those hospital patients and shut-ins and those of you <laughs> who can't right. make it out? To the game, but a delightful conversation with the absolute dean of Vancouver sportscasting, Jim Robson, and we hope you enjoyed it as much as as much as we did. And, and there's a trivia question for you to win some money at the bar. Huh? Who did the first Vancouver Canucks game on the radio? Yeah, Danny Galvin of all people. What about that memory, though? Honestly, well, uh, I have always known him to be whip sharp with the memory. Yeah. And it's funny because I hadn't seen him in a while in March when Jeff Patterson and I were standing by the bar at the Commodore for the Red Robinson Memorial, and Jim walked right on up, and we both said our hellos, and within seconds had launched into a story in great detail about the BC City High School track and field championships and how Red Robinson used to always show up with like a mobile unit spinning records and entertaining all the kids who got the day off of school to go watch the track and field championships. And Jeff and I, after we parted his company, just sort of went, he still has that amazing Mm -hmm. memory uh, now at 88 years young. Okay, Bodog Line of the Daytime with Blake Price. Bodog, your source, free casino games, poker strategy, sports odds, so you like what you got. Well, I'm I'm going Ryder Cup winner because you know me. Oh, you love love team golf. No, I don't like team golf, as people well know, but um, if I'm I'm forced to bet on team golf, you can bet I'm betting against the United States on that one. So can Europe pull it out finally? Plus 160 for Europe. Well, Europe wins. To win the Ryder Cup. They win more than their fair share. Oh, I don't know. That doesn't feel like on it. your Bodog line of the day. Thanks for listening, everybody. A reminder to subscribe to us and Rankwide wherever you get your podcasts. And then please do follow us on Twitter, Insta, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok. Of course, support the community sponsors you hear us talking about. Hope you've had a marvelous BC Day long weekend. Keep it local. <laughs>